0: You're listening to the teaching ministry of Discovery Church in Bristol, Tennessee. For more information about Discovery, or for more free audio content, please visit discoverybristol.com. Well, good morning. I thought, uh, I thought this morning we might start out with a little bit of a history lesson. Anybody ready for some history class? Okay, it's not going to be, you know, American history or world history. It's not even really going to be biblical history. This morning, I thought we'd start out talking about the history of the selfie, Anybody in here ever, you you can admit it or not, anybody taken a selfie before? I mean, I'm going to go to your, your social media profiles later and find out if you did or you didn't. The first selfie, it's kind of debated, but the first selfie that was ever taken was in 1839 by a guy named Robert Cornelius who invented the light camera technique. And look at him, right? Like he just... Cross the arms, real casual, right? Like first selfie, right there. Uh, then we fast forward to 1909. We get a guy named J.B. Clayton who took the first handheld safe selfie. And there he is also, I think, probably the first squad selfie, right? It's totally squad goals. They've all got the sweet hats, like they're matching, some nice facial hair going on there. That was 1909. Uh, then as we fast forward a lot of years, the handheld camera becomes more readily available, right? So it's not the point anymore where like you have to stand for an hour to get your picture taken with a big like light flash bulbs. Like now we have the smaller handheld cameras and here at this point in history, around the 50s and the 60s, the selfie just really takes off. We see it from celebrities and musicians, even political families, future politicians. Um, So the selfie really takes off in the 60s. Then if you fast forward to the 1990s, we get what I think is probably the most expensive selfie. And it was this one right here taken from the Voyager satellite. As it traveled out to the far reaches of space, they had it turn its camera around to all of us, right? And I didn't get the notice that I was supposed to smile right then, but that's all of us right there in that pale blue dot in the circle. That's the whole world. So that I think was probably the most expensive selfie in 1990. Then when we hit the 2000s, we see some like rapid advances in selfie technology. In 2003, we get the first front-facing camera on the Sony Ericsson Z1010. And as they were making this, what they thought they were making it for was for business. conferences. But when we got our hands on that sucker, we said, no, I know what this is for. This is for me. I can take easier pictures of myself now. I don't have to turn it around. That was too complicated. Like we can just get rid of the mirror altogether. That was 2003. Then in 2011, this lady right here posted the first selfie to Instagram using the hashtag selfie. And that became just even a part of the language. He was somehow the first to think of, I'm gonna hashtag my selfie with selfie. And let me tell you, I had to scroll a lot of, a lot of hashtags this week to get back to that image, the very first one on Instagram there. Uh, then we have in 2013, the word selfie is actually added to the dictionary. If we to have gone back to like J.B. Clayton and his squad, like probably they're not saying what they did was a selfie. Um, They'd just look at you weird. If you're like, hey, let's take a selfie, they'd be like, what now? Uh, But the the word is actually added to the dictionary now, like just a part of our our vocabulary worldwide. Um, In 2014, we see the rise of, ready for it, the selfie stick. Yes, the selfie stick, because, you know, my arm's not long enough for a good picture. I need a tool that can help me focus on myself better, that can help me take a better picture of myself. And the selfie stick was added into our lives. And then since then, we've seen selfies with celebrities and politicians and even selfies in space. We've seen all kinds of selfies from all kinds of places on tops of statues And we've also seen selfies in maybe some uh, places that aren't great places for selfies, maybe some inappropriate selfies happening there. The selfie, this picture of ourselves is all over the world to where today, if you looked up the hashtag for selfie on Instagram, you would find 433 million posts of selfies, hashtag selfies, and that doesn't count Facebook, that doesn't count Twitter, that doesn't count the ones that we've not hashtag selfie. Who could even imagine how many selfies are uploaded to the internet every second? I don't think you could even begin to calculate that. All of this, I, <laughs> I use our selfie, excuse me, I use our the example of a selfie just to kind of maybe point the camera at ourselves, if you will, so that we can take a look at ourselves and maybe just make an argument that we are a bit selfie obsessed right? Like maybe just as a world, as a culture, we have a selfie obsession. And with that, I think comes an amount of maybe self-obsession. And so I don't know where you are this morning, what your relationship is to the selfie. Like you could, you know, I don't know how many selfies you've taken and, or anything like that, but I sometimes think it's not even the amount of selfies that you have taken, but it's the amount you take one selfie, right? Like I, I've watched working with teenagers, like I've seen this happen where you have a group or just two girls and they will just for an hour, they're just taking picture after picture and then going through like, nope, not that one. Delete that. That one can't be seen by anybody so that we get the exact perfect image of our self. I think maybe we have a bit of a selfie obsession, but beyond that, that's a reflection of our self-obsession, our struggle with putting our first and not putting others first which is what makes it so difficult to now tackle the passage that Paul is going to preach on from his his prison cell that Paul preaches on here in 2nd, I said this first over, 2nd Philippians, Philippians 2. There's no 2nd Philippians, the only Philippians letter we got. I'm going to probably say it again, Philippians 2. And we're going to look at just the idea of humility and pride this morning as Paul writes to us. So let's read. In Philippians chapter 2, he says this, starting in verse 3. Do nothing... From selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now, right here, I mean, we are deep in it. Like we have a difficult passage to trudge through this week. And let me just tell you, like if you ever want just a challenge, spend a week where you know at the end of that week you have to preach on humility and it will change your whole week. I cannot tell you how many times I was about to say something or do something and then I'd fast forward and be like, oh, but Sunday morning, I gotta talk about humility and I am not living it right now. It is a difficult thing to live. Look at our world. If you went from the the bottom to the top, if you went from Little League, anybody ever had the, the opportunity, the joy to coach a little league game, or even worse, maybe officiate a little league game, you are going to see our world's lack of humility at its finest, as every parent whose kid, whether they came to practice or have any talent, their kid needs to be the star player, right? Or the poor officiant who's probably like volunteering, not even making minimum wage, makes like one dumb call, and then everybody in there is an expert on the sport, right? Like, we do not do well with humility, If you take it from there, just even the Little League, like where we've seen the worst of ourselves, but then let's take it to the the political playing field. Man, politics is a place for pride and not humility, right? Because if you're gonna get elected, you have to put yourself first. You have to say, no, I'm the first guy, I'm your best choice, I'm all of these things. So we've developed a political system that celebrates not humility, but pride. I would almost argue that a humble person just could not succeed, couldn't get themselves elected in our world today. And I think that's a big issue. We have an issue of pride in our world. We have an issue of pride in ourselves. And yet here comes Paul saying, we need to be humble, that we need to work on humility. So if you think it's a hard concept for us, well, let me just tell you about the Greeks, the people that, the Greeks and Romans that Paul was writing to. It's a foreign concept for us, but for them, they barely had a word for humility, In fact, what we're reading right here where Paul talks about humility, it is the only time you read that word in the Greek language until like the second century. So Paul, many scholars believe, is maybe the first person to use this phrase of humility because there's no no other sources like other things other than the Bible, extra biblical Greek sources in the language. They don't use the word that Paul uses here. They don't talk about this concept of humility until the second century. So again, a lot of scholars think maybe Paul made this up, that that Paul coined this idea of humility. And so with it, we see his definition. That is like the direct, the original definition of humility. When he says that humility is counting others more significant than yourselves. That I think should just be our running definition of humility. Deciding that I am not as significant as everybody else. That others matter more than me. And so we see this from Paul, but... Paul didn't just pull this out of the air. Like Paul didn't just come up with this on his own. Paul is drawing from a rich history of Jesus's teaching laid out for us in the gospel where Jesus talked about humility. So if we look at some of Jesus's parables, if you really wanna find a lot of, of Jesus's ideas on humility, you can go to the book of Luke. And in the book of Luke, Jesus teaches this one parable where there's like a big wedding feast. And he's like, whenever you go to a wedding feast, don't find yourself at like the most important position. Like don't go to the table where like the bride and the groom sit in the wedding party and be like, oh, this must be my chair in front of everybody, right? Jesus says, don't take the most important seat, the place of honor. He says, take the lowliest seat and then allow the host to invite you up. And with this, he says in Luke 14, 11, he says, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. We also see in the book of Luke, the parable of the good Samaritan, where this, there was this guy that was mugged and left for dead on the side of the road, but this Samaritan puts himself second, puts the other guy who he doesn't even know first and takes him at risk to himself. And then at financial, like he, he puts up the money for this guy to go and stay in this hotel. He puts this guy first. He says, I don't matter as much as this guy. I don't even know him, but he matters more than me. Jesus also taught another parable in Luke chapter 18 where he talks about prayer and he sets up this story. There's like a a Pharisee, a religious official who's praying and he's praying all loud. And he says, God, thank you that I'm as awesome as I am. And I'm so much better than all these other sinners and that I tithe all of this. And, And Jesus starts saying, don't be like that guy. Like Jesus is the first one to condemn virtue signaling, right? Like he's the, he does that before. It's cool. He's like, don't be like that guy showing how good you are. But then he starts telling a story of another guy, a tax collector, who would have been considered just a a sinner, like would have been considered like, you know, just not a well-behaved dude. And he said, but then in the corner, there was this tax collector praying and he just beat on his chest and he said, God, please have mercy on me, a sinner. And after Jesus finishes that parable, he says in Luke 18, 14, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. In Matthew 18, 4, Jesus takes a child, puts it in their midst. He says, Be like this child. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Humility is the first of the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So when we get to Philippians chapter 2, Paul is just repeating Jesus. He's just taking the teachers of Jesus that, that probably have been adopted by Christians that has just become the practice of Christianity and he says, do this stuff. And so what do we need to do? How can we in our lives, like how can we really practice humility? How can, we, how can we gain humility in our lives? Well, if we just go back through those two verses we read from Philippians 2, we're gonna see five things Paul lays out as part of humility. He says first to do nothing out of selfish ambition. Now, I want to be careful, like Paul doesn't say that ambition is sinful. He doesn't say that achievement is wrong. He says that selfish ambition is what we should avoid. He says, don't do things, don't don't try and set goals that only benefit you, but set goals that help other people. Don't have ambition and achievement that only benefits you, but use it to benefit other people. He says, do nothing out of conceit. Do nothing out of out of vanity. The KJV instead of conceit probably uses that term vainglory, which I love. Just this idea of like glory in vain, glory that means nothing. It's found in vain and it results in vain also. He says, do nothing out of vanity, out of conceit. And then the third thing he says is don't only look to your interests. So we're not to only look to our interests. Now, Paul isn't saying here, like, do not do anything for yourself. Don't give yourself a job. Don't get shelter. Don't don't put on clothes. Like, just be walling around, like, filthy. Do nothing for yourself. That's what Paul says. He says, don't only look to your interests. So we're not to only focus on ourselves. And the fourth thing he says, but instead look to the interests of others. Make sure that the other people around you, that they have what they need, that they're taken care of, that we are to care for others. We are to serve others. And then the fifth thing that he says is to count others more significant than yourself. And that is tough. Count the people that are annoying as more significant than yourself. Count the people that are different from you as more significant than yourself, that look different from you, that vote different from you, that just the guy that you don't even like at work and probably isn't doing a good job. Count that person as more significant than yourself. He's saying, pretend like these people matter more than you. Irrelevant to whether they do or not, act as if they matter more. Paul takes it to the furthest extent. He's not saying, listen, people just matter. He's saying, people matter more than you. This is what Paul is telling us. Those are the five things he lays out for us to live in humility. The five things that as Christians we should do. Nothing out of selfish ambition, nothing out of conceit. Don't only look to your interests, look to the interests of others and then count others as more significant than yourself. Jesus taught on humility, but we also really see Jesus practice humility. He didn't just preach it. He also practiced it. If we look back at those five things where we're told not to do anything out of selfish ambition, just look at the life of Jesus. I mean, the guy wasn't trying to become a king. In fact, he was avoiding it. After he does one of his great miracles and there's a big crowd around him, it says in John six fifteen, this crowd that, that Jesus sees, they perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king. Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Jesus escapes that. The moment that he could have tried to go after selfish ambition and be made king, Jesus escapes it we find that we're to do nothing out of conceit, well, look at who Jesus hung out with. He wasn't hanging out with the cool kids, right? He was hanging out with poor fishermen and the Zacchaeuses of the world. On Palm Sunday, Jesus didn't enter in like in in vanity on a big stallion. He entered in humbly on a donkey. As Paul tells us not to look only to our own interests, Jesus, we would never even really see him looking to his own interests, right? In fact, we don't even really read about whether he has a home or not. It feels like he's just kind of hosted by other people. In fact, he says in Luke 9, 58, uh, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So Jesus almost feels like he wasn't looking to his own interests at all. And then Paul tells us, look to the interests of others. That is everything, everything Jesus did. He healed the people that couldn't walk. He fed people that were hungry. He spent time with the lonely people. Jesus was constantly looking to the interests of others. And he definitely counted others as more significant than himself. And we see that in a great way in John 13. When the night before he died, Jesus gets a bowl of water and wraps a towel around his waist and goes to each disciple and washes their feet. Even the feet of Judas, who was gonna sell him out later to death. Jesus counted others as more significant than himself. Jesus did every single thing that Paul talks about. Jesus did it. And the fullest extent, I think, that we see of Jesus' humility comes here in Philippians 2.6. If you'll read on with me, Paul says, Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. I spent most of the week just going through this passage. Like, even if I'm riding in the car, I'd be listening to this passage and kind of thinking about it. And and it took me a good bit to really draw a connection here that Paul is making in these verses. And I'm excited to share it with you because right here, I don't know if you caught it or not. I certainly didn't, my first reading through. But Paul is making a connection here with the Garden of Eden. Paul's making a callback to the very first humans when he talks about Jesus. Because here in the Garden of Eden, we see Adam and Eve, right? Adam and Eve are in the garden. They've got the two trees, the tree of life, and then the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God gives them one rule in this garden of paradise where they are well provided for, where they are with God walking in this garden. He says, don't eat from this one tree. And then the serpent slithers in, right? We know to be the devil. And the devil comes to Eve, and he starts tempting her, telling oh, you got to eat from that. And so he goes to speak to the, the woman. In Genesis 3, 4, we read this. It says, The serpent said to the woman, You will surely not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. This first sin was Adam and Eve, was humans trying to elevate themselves To the position of God. They were trying to grasp equality with God saying, I want to be like him. I want more. I want to know good and evil. I want to be like God. That was the first sin. It was a sin of pride, right? The idea that I could elevate myself, that I deserve this. I need this. I'm going to think more of myself than what God has taught me. The first sin we see is a sin of pride. It was Adam and Eve trying to elevate themselves to the status of God But here Paul talks about Jesus saying that he emptied himself, taking the form of the servant. Jesus, who we know, is God. John chapter 1 tells us he is God, he was God, he was with God at the beginning. But here Paul tells us he did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped. And instead he left his position of glory and came to the earth and became a humble servant. The opposite of that is what Adam and Eve did. The opposite of that is what we do every time we sin out of pride saying, I deserve more. I need a higher status. I could be God-like. If we really look at it, I think we can make an argument that not only is the first sin rooted in pride, but every sin is rooted in pride. Thinking I deserve that more than this other person. Or I'm better than that person, so I'm gonna treat him this way. Or I want this thing, I should have this thing. I could argue all day that every sin I think is rooted in pride, but we definitely see that first sin was rooted in pride. And with that first sin, we've been talking about this on Sunday and Wednesday nights at Disruption with our middle school and our high school students as we go through just God's plan for salvation for us. We're calling it the eternity story. We know that that first sin equaled death. that Because Adam and Eve sinned, they turned their back on God. They couldn't be in relationship with God in the garden anymore, so they had to be kicked out of the garden. And with that punishment came death. And so from this first sin, the sin of pride, came death. And so pride for us equals death. But then we know that if we want to be with Jesus, if we want to have a relationship with him, the first step to that, if we look at our ABCs of salvation, of admit, believe, and confess, the first step of a relationship with Jesus is humility, is admitting that we have that sin. Saying, I've thought too much of myself. I've got all this mess in my life and I need someone to rescue me from that because my sin is leading me to death on my own. I can't do it. That takes a great amount of humility. So death began in pride, but life begins in humility. In pride, we find death. In pride, we find sin. But when we can humble ourselves and recognize who we really are in the grand scheme of things, we need humility and we can recognize, God, I need you. Death begins with pride, but life begins in humility. Jesus tells us, or the Bible tells us in 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sins, If we make ourselves humble, we bring our sins before the Lord. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Death began in pride, but life begins in humility. And so that's why every week we gather together and we celebrate communion with one another. One of the the parts of communion should always be confession. It should always be a reflection back on why it is we need Jesus' body Broken for us, His blood poured out for us. It's time for us to just confess our sins silently to Him. It's time for us to take a humble position and say, God, this is what I've done, and this is why I need you. And so I want to do that together right now, and we're going to maybe just even do it a little abruptly. You're going to find that there's communion under your chair already. And with that, I want you just to take the, the little wafer right now, which represents the bread. Hold on to the, the cup, hold on to the juice. And we're gonna take this bread together, the bread which represents Jesus' body that was broken for us on the cross. And what I wanna do in this time is just have a time for silent confession, just you on your own, however you need to do that, just praying silently in your heart, or maybe you wanna jot some things down in the scripture notebook you might have. Let's just have some time together of confession, confessing to God and saying, God, I'm a sinner. I need you. And because of your son's body, I can have life. So right now, I'm going to invite you to just spend some time silently confessing those sins to God. And together, let's eat this bread which represents Jesus' body given up to us so that we don't have to suffer the penalty of those sins. Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is what Jesus did for us. Jesus left his position of esteem, of glory, and he came to our earth to die for us, when we didn't deserve it, not because of our behavior or because of our actions, but because he loves us. That is what Jesus did for us on the cross. So let's talk a little bit about what God did for Jesus, how God honored Jesus's obedience and what Paul lays out for us in the next verses in verse 9. Paul says, therefore, because Jesus did this on the cross, Because Jesus left heaven, left glory, and came down to our earth, left his godship, and became human. It says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus' humility brought him glory, right? Right? Because Jesus didn't consider himself to to grasp, didn't consider himself to be equal with God, but instead became a human in humility and then died a shameful, humiliating death on a cross to reward that. God lifted him up, lifted him up to be at the right hand of the Father, to have a throne in heaven that we can read about in the book of Revelation, to have elders coming and throwing crowns at that throne. This is the glory that Jesus received because of his humility because of what he was willing to do for us, because of the way he humbly was an obedient servant to his father. That's how God honored Jesus's humility. And here's the good news. For us, we get the same thing. Our humility also brings us glory. I don't know for you, like that time where we just had like spending confession, like I don't know how that felt for you. For me, it's not an easy time. I don't like going through the things, my shortcomings, my sins. That's a difficult thing. And some of us, we just, we never do it. We never achieve it. But if we can, if we can humble ourselves and say, Jesus, I need you, here are my sins. Well, we too will be lifted up. We will get glory. We will be glorified. It's everything Jesus has taught us already. In those parables we talked about, the parable of the wedding feast, the parable of the two people praying, Jesus said, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. He who admits, I am a sinner, I need God in my life, he will be exalted to eternal life around the throne of Jesus. If we can make ourselves low, God will lift us up. The Christian life begins in humility, but it ends in glory. It begins by recognizing where we fall short, but it ends with God lifting us up to say, you're enough, you're enough for me because of my son. So remember that death begins in pride, but life begins in humility. And humility for the Christian, that's where our life starts, but then it ends in glory because of what Jesus did for us and because of what God will do for us. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, if we look at this and, and you're just honest with yourself about this, honest with yourself of how hard it is to not pursue any, any selfish ambition, to not look only to your, your issues, but to look to the issues of others. If you're honest with yourself of how difficult it is to put others in front of yourself, man, it's difficult. Again, I've been living with this all week and it is tough, Like, it is tough just to try and live in these verses, these chapters here. It's like, man, you're just going to be world's biggest hypocrite on Sunday, standing up there trying to talk about humility when this is, you know, how your week has been. And all that. it is just difficult, if we are honest. It's miraculous, right? Like, that is a miracle, I think, for a human in 2020 to be a humble person. I believe it's as much a miracle as when Jesus walked on water. And so I stood up here and I'm like, well, your life can only begin in that action. And that thing that in our selfie-obsessed world is so difficult to do, your life with Jesus can only begin in humility. But here's the good news, is that for those of us that have given ourselves over to Jesus, I skipped a verse of that Paul preached to us. Philippians 2.5, Paul says this, after he talks about being humble and all of those things, he says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. He's saying, have the the mind of humility, the mind of putting others in in front. Have that mind among yourself, and it's yours already, because you've got Jesus. It is your mind in Jesus Christ, because not only did Jesus give up his life for us, he gave his spirit to us so that we don't only get to experience him in death, but we also get to carry him with us in life. Because we have the spirit of Jesus, we can live like Jesus in our world. We can live putting others first, even if we disagree with them, or even if we frankly don't like them, we can still put that person in front of us and say, this person matters more than me because I know how much I matter to Jesus. And I know how much I didn't deserve his love, but he still gave it to me. And I know that this person too needs that love. With Jesus' spirit, we can learn to live as humble people. And I believe that if we can, man, that would be countercultural. People are going to notice humble people in our world filled with pride. And I believe it would change our world. If all of us, if everyone in the world was always putting the other's needs in front of their own, always saying other people matter more than me, man, our world would change. War would disappear. Hunger would disappear. We would be living in a different world. And I believe it can start with us, not because of how great we are, but because of how great our God is and the fact that we carry his spirit. And so this week, that's my encouragement to you, to focus in, man, where do I need more humility? Where am I failing at humility? And and how can I get more of it? It's by seeing more of our God. The more we see of this perfect God, we're gonna realize just how much more we are imperfect and how much we need him in our lives. And so earlier, we spent a time just confessing our own sins, and we focused on the bread, the sacrifice of Jesus's body. Remember, Paul tells us that one day, Every knee will bow to Jesus. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. So earlier we confessed our need to him. Well, now with the juice, which represents Jesus' blood poured out on the cross, I just wanna spend a time confessing him as Lord of our lives, of celebrating his sacrifice, of celebrating his death, of celebrating the fact that he humbled himself so that we could be exalted. So as we take this together, I'm going to pray. I'm going to first invite you to stand. So go ahead and stand up. Grab your cup. And let me pray for us together. And then we're going to take this, and then we're going to go into a time of singing and confessing that Jesus is Lord of our lives. So let me pray. God, I pray this morning you would show us where there's pride in our life and remind us that pride equals death. Show us, God, where we are lacking humility and remind us that humility equals life. And I pray, God, that we would strive towards being more like your son, taking his teaching to heart, living like him, and being humble people that put others first. God, give us the power to do that as your word promises you will. And with that, God, we thank you that because of our humility, of us admitting that we need you in our life, we will find glory. Thank you, God, that though death begins in pride, life can begin in humility, but that the Christian life ends in glory. So now, God, we thank you for Jesus's death on the cross for us, and we confess him as our Lord. We confess him as the one who loves us. We confess him as the one who's been the greatest that has walked our earth. We confess him as our King.